0: People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies Reading, Guerrilla Warfare, by Ernesto Che Guevara. Chapter 2, Part 1. The Guerrilla Fighter, Social Reformer. We have already described the guerrilla fighter as one who shares the longing of the people for liberation and who, once peaceful means are exhausted, initiates the fight and converts himself into an armed vanguard of the people fighting. From the very beginning of the struggle, he has the intention of destroying an unjust order, and therefore an intention, more or less, hidden, to replace the old with something new. We have also already said that in the conditions that prevail, at least in America and in almost all countries with deficient economic development, it is the countryside that offers ideal conditions for the fight. Therefore, the foundation of the social structure that the guerrilla fighter will build begins with changes in the ownership of agrarian property. The banner of the fight throughout this period will be agrarian reform. At first, this goal may or may not be completely delineated in its extent and limits. It may simply refer to the age-old hunger of the peasant for the land on which he works or wishes to work. The conditions in which the agrarian reform will be realized depend upon the conditions which exist before the struggle began and on the social depth of the struggle. But the guerrilla fighter... ...as a person conscious of a role in the vanguard party of the people... ...must have a moral conduct that shows him to be a true priest of the reform to which he aspires. To the stoicism imposed by the difficult conditions of warfare... ...should be added an austerity born of rigid self-control that will prevent a single excess... A single slip, whatever the circumstances, the guerrilla soldier should be ascetic. As for social relations, these will vary with the development of war. At the beginning, it will not be impossible to attempt any changes in the social order. Merchandise that cannot be paid for in cash will be paid for with bonds, and these should be redeemed at the first and greatest opportunities. The peasant must always be helped technically, economically, morally, and culturally. The guerrilla fighter will be a sort of guiding angel who has fallen into the zone, helping the poor always and bothering the rich as little as possible in the first phases of the war. But this war will continue on its course. Contradictions will continuously become sharper and The moment will arrive when many of those who regarded the revolution with a certain sympathy at the outset will place themselves in a position diametrically opposed. And they will take the first step into battle against the popular forces. At that moment, the guerrilla fighter should act to make himself into the standard bearer of the cause of the people, punishing every betrayal with justice. Private property should acquire in the war zones its social function. For example, excess land and livestock, not essential for the maintenance of a wealthy family, should pass into the hands of the people and be distributed equally and justly. The right of the owners to receive payment for possessions used for the social good ought always to be respected. But this payment will be made in bonds. Bonds of hope, in quotations, as they were called by our teacher, General Beyo, subnote 3. Referring to the common interest that is thereby established between the debtor and the collector. The land and the property of notorious and active enemies of the revolution should pass immediately into the hands of the revolutionary forces. Furthermore, taking advantage of the heat of the war, those moments in which human fraternity reaches its highest intensity, all kinds of cooperative work, as much as the mentality of the inhabitants will permit, ought to be stimulated. The guerrilla fighter, as a social reformer, should not only provide an example in his own life, but he ought to consistently give orientation in ideological problems, explaining that what he knows and what he wishes to do at the right time. He will also make use of what he learns as the months or years of the war strengthen his revolutionary convictions, making him more radical as the potency of arms is demonstrated, as the outlook of the inhabitants becomes part of his spirit and of his own life and as he understands the justice and the vital necessity of a series of changes of which the theoretical importance appeared to him before, but devoid of practical urgency. This development occurs very often because the initiators of guerrilla warfare, or rather, the directors of guerrilla warfare, are not people who have bent their backs day after day over the furrow, They are men who understand the necessity for changes in the social treatment according to peasants without having suffered in the usual case of this bitter treatment in their own persons. It happens then, I am drawing on the Cuban experience and enlarging it, that a genuine interaction is produced between these leaders who with their acts teach the people the fundamental importance of the armed fight and the people themselves who raise in rebellion and teach leaders of these practical necessities of which we speak. Thus, as the product of this interaction between the guerrilla fighter and his people, a progressive radicalization appears, which further accentuates the revolutionary characteristics of the movement and gives it a national scope. Footnote. Colonel Alberto Bello, a Cuban veteran of guerrilla warfare in Spain, served as instructor of the forces assembled by Fidel Castro in Mexico for training prior to the invasion of Cuba in December 1956. Chapter 2, Part 2 The Guerrilla Fighter as a Combatant The life and activities of the guerrilla fighter, sketched thus in their general lines, call for a series of physical, mental, and moral qualities needed for adapting oneself to prevailing conditions and for fulfilling completely any mission assigned. To the question as to what the guerrilla soldier should be like, the first answer is that he should preferably be an inhabitant of the zone. If this is the case, he will have friends who will help him. If he belongs to the zone itself, he will know it. Brackets, and this knowledge of the ground is one of the most important factors in guerrilla warfare. Close bracket. And since he will be habituated to the local particulars, he will be able to do better work not to mention that he will add to all this the enthusiasm that arises from defending his own people and fighting to change a social regime that hurts his own world. The guerrilla combatant is a knight combatant. To say this is to say at the same time that he must have all special qualities that such fighting requires. He must be cunning and be able to march to the place of attack across plains or mountains without anybody noticing him, and then to fall upon the enemy, taking advantage of the factor of surprise, which deserves to be emphasized again as important in this type of fight. After causing panic by his surprise, he should launch himself into the fight implicably, without permitting a single weakness in his companions and taking advantage of every sign of weakness on the part of the enemy. Striking like a tornado, destroying all, giving no quarter unless the tactical circumstances call for it, judging those who must be judged, sowing panic among the enemy combatants, he nevertheless treats defenseless prisoners benevolently and shows respect for the dead. A wounded enemy should be treated with care and respect unless his former life has made him liable to the death penalty, in which case he will be treated in accordance with his deserts. What can never be done is to keep prisoners unless a secure base of operation invulnerable to the enemy has been established. Otherwise, the prisoner will become a dangerous menace to the security of the inhabitants, of the region, or of the guerrilla band itself because of the information he can give upon rejoining the enemy army. If he has not been a notorious criminal, he should be set free after receiving a lecture. The guerrilla combatant ought to risk his life whenever necessary, and be ready to die without the last sign of doubt. But, at the same time, he ought to be cautious, and never expose himself unnecessarily. All possible precautions ought to be taken to avoid defeat or annihilation. For this reason, it is extremely important in every fight to maintain vigilance over all points from which the enemy reinforcements may arrive, and to take precautions against any encirclement, the consequences of which, usually not physically disastrous, but which damages morale by causing a loss of faith in the prospects of the struggle." However, he ought to be audacious and, after carefully analyzing the dangers and possibilities in an action, always ready to take an optimistic attitude towards circumstances and to see reasons for a favorable decision, even in moments when the analysis of the adverse and the favorable conditions does not show an appreciable positive balance. To be able to survive in the midst of these conditions of life and enemy action, the guerrilla fighter must have a degree of adaptability that will permit him or her to identify himself or herself with the environment in which they live, to become a part of it, and to take advantage of it as his ally to the maximum possible extent. He also needs a faculty of rapid comprehension and an instantaneous inventiveness that will permit him or her to change his or her tactics according to the dominant course of the action. These faculties of adaptability and inventiveness in popular armies are what ruin the statistics of the warlords and cause them to waver. The guerrilla fighter must never, for any reason, leave a wounded companion at the mercy of the enemy troops because this would leave him to an almost certain death. At whatever cost, he must be removed from the zone of combat to a secure place. The greatest exertions and the greatest risks must be taken in this task. The guerrilla soldier must be an extraordinary companion. At the same time, he ought to be closed mouth. Everything that is said and done before him should be kept strictly in his own mind. He ought to never permit himself a single useless word, even with his own comrades in arms, since the enemy will always try to introduce spies into the ranks of the guerrilla band in order to discover its plans, location, and means of life. Besides the moral qualities that we have mentioned, the guerrilla fighter should possess a series of very important physical qualities. He must be indefatigable. He must be able to produce another effort at the moment when weariness seems intolerable. Profound conviction, expressed in every line of his face, forces him to take another step. And this is not the last one, since it will be followed by another and another and another until he arrives at the place designated by his chiefs. He ought to be able to endure extremities. To withstand not only the privations of food, water, clothing, and shelter to which he is subjected frequently, and the sickness and wounds that often must be cured by nature without much help from the surgeon. This is all the more necessary because usually the individual who leaves the guerrilla zone to recover from sickness or wounds will be assassinated by the enemy. To meet these conditions, he needs an iron constitution that will enable him to resist all the adversities without falling ill, and to make of his haunted animal's life one more factor of strength. With the help of his natural adaptability, he becomes a part of the land itself where he fights. All these considerations bring us to ask, what is the ideal age for the guerrilla fighter? These limits are always very difficult to state precisely because individual and social particularities change the figure. A peasant, for example, will be much more resistant than a man from the city. A city dweller who is accustomed to physical exercise and a healthy life will be much more efficient than a person who has lived all his life behind a desk. But generally, the maximum age of combatants in the completely nomadic stage of the guerrilla struggle ought not to exceed 40 years, although there will be exceptional cases, above all among the peasants. One of the heroes of our struggle, Comandante Crecesio Perez, entered the Sierra at 65 years of age and was immediately one of the most useful men in the troop. We might also ask if the members of the guerrilla band should be drawn from certain social classes. It has already been said that this social composition ought to be adjusted to that of the zone chosen for the center of operations, which is to say that the combatant nucleus of the guerrilla army ought to be made up of peasants. The peasant is evidently the best soldier, but the other strata of the population are not by any means to be excluded nor deprived of the opportunity to fight for a just cause. Individual exceptions are also very important to this respect. We have not yet fixed the lower limit of age. We believe that minors less than 16 years of age ought not to be accepted for the fight except in very special circumstances. In general, these young boys, or women, nearly children, do not have sufficient development to bear up under the work, the weather, and the suffering to which they will be subjected. The best age for a guerrilla fighter varies between 25 and 35 years, at a stage in which the life of the most persons has assumed definite shape. Whoever sets out at that age, abandoning his home, His children and his entire world must have thought well of his responsibility and reached a firm decision not to retreat a step. There are extraordinary cases of children who, as combatants, have reached the highest ranks of our rebel army, but this is not the usual case. For every one of them who has displayed great fighting qualities, there were tens who ought to have been returned to their homes and who frequently constituted a dangerous burden for the guerrilla band. The guerrilla fighter, as we have said, is a soldier who carries his house on his back like a snail. Therefore, he must arrange his knapsack in such a way that the smallest quantity of utensils will render the greatest possible service. He will carry only the indispensable, but will take care of it at all times as something fundamental and not to be lost except in extremely adverse situations. His armament will also be only that which he can carry on his own. Reprovising is very difficult, above all with bullets. To keep them dry, always to keep them clean, to count them one by one, so that none is lost. These are the watchwords. And the gun ought to always be kept clean, well greased, and with its barrel shining. It is advisable for the chief of each group to impose some penalty or punishment on those who do not maintain their armaments in these conditions. People with such notable devotion and firmness must have an ideal that sustains them in the adverse conditions that we have described. This ideal is simple without great pretentiousness and in general does not go very far, but it is so firm that, so clear that one will give his life for it without the least hesitation. With almost all peasants, this ideal is the right to have and work a piece of land of their own and to enjoy just social treatment. Among workers, it is to have work, to receive an adequate wage, as well as a just social treatment among students and professional people. More abstract ideas such as liberty are found to be motives for the fight. This brings us to the question, what is the life of the guerrilla fighter like? His normal life is the long hike. Let us take an example, a mountain guerrilla fighter located in wooded regions under constant harassment by the enemy. In these conditions, the guerrilla band moves during daylight hours without eating in order to change its position. When night arrives, camp is set up in a clearing near a water supply according to a routine. Each group assembling in order to eat in common. At dusk, the fires are lighted with whatever is at hand. The guerrilla fighter eats when he can and everything he can. Sometimes, fabulous feats disappear in the gullet of the combatant. At other times, he fasts for two or three days without suffering any diminution in his capacity for work. His house will be open sky. Between it and his hammock... He places a sheet of waterproof nylon, and beneath the cloth, a hammock. And beneath the cloth and hammock, he places his knapsack, gun, and ammunition, which are the treasures of the guerrilla fighter. At times, it is not wise for shoes to be removed because of the possibility of surprise attack by the enemy. Shoes are another of his precious treasures. Whoever has a pair of them has the security of a happy existence within the limits of the prevailing circumstances. Thus, the guerrilla fighter will live for days without approaching any inhabitable place, avoiding all contact that has not been previously arranged, staying in the wildest zones, knowing hunger, at times thirst, cold, heat, sweating during the continuous marches, letting the sweat dry on his body and adding it to the new sweat without any possibility of regular cleanliness bracket this also depends sometime upon individual's disposition as does everything else close bracket during the recent war Upon entering the village of El Uvero following a march of 16 kilometers and a fight of 2 hours and 45 minutes in the hot sun, all added to several days passed in various adverse conditions along the sea. With intense heat from the boiling sun, our bodies gave off a particular and offensive odor that repelled anyone who came near. Our noses were completely habituated to this type of life. Thus, hammocks of the guerrilla fighter are known for their characteristic individual odor. In such conditions, breaking camp ought to be done rapidly, leaving no traces behind. Vigilance must be extreme. For every ten men sleeping, there ought to be one or two on watch, with the sentinels being changed continually and a sharp vigil being maintained over entrances to the camp. Campaign life teaches several tricks For preparing meals, some to help speed their preparation, others to add seasoning with little things found in the forest. Still others for inventing new dishes that give a more varied character to the gorilla menu, which is composed mainly of roots, grains, salt, a little oil or lard, and very sporadically, a piece of meat of some animal that has been slain. This refers to the life of a group operating in tropical sectors. Within the framework of the combatant life, the most interesting event, the one that carries all to a convulsion of joy and puts new vigor in everybody's steps, is the battle. The battle, climax of the guerrilla life, is sought at an opportune moment, either when an enemy encampment sufficiently weak to be annihilated has been located and investigated, or when an enemy column is advancing directly towards the territory that occupied by liberating forces... The two cases are different. Against an encampment, the action will be thin encirclement and fundamentally will come to hunt for the members of the columns that come to break the encirclement. An entrenched army is never the favorite prey of the guerrilla fighter. He prefers his enemy to be on the move, nervous, not knowing the ground, fearful of everything, and without natural protections for defense. Whoever is behind a pair of pet with powerful arms for repelling an offensive will never be in the plight however bad his situation of a long column that is attacked suddenly in two or three places and cut if the attackers are not able to encircle the column and destroy it totally they will retire prior to any counteraction if there is no possibility of defeating those entrenched in a camp by means of hunger or thirst or by direct assault, the gorilla ought to retire after the encirclement has yielded its fruits of destruction in revealing columns." In cases where the guerrilla column is too weak and the invading column too strong, the action should be concentrated upon the vanguard. There should be a special preference for this tactic, whatever the hoped-for result, since after leading ranks have been struck several times, thus diffusing among the soldiers the news that death is constantly occurring in those in the van, the reluctant to occupy those places will provoke nothing less than mutiny." Therefore, attacks ought to be made on the point, even if they are also made at other points of the column. The facility with which the guerrilla fighter can perform his function and adapt himself to the environment will depend upon his equipment. Even though joined with others in small groups, he has individual characteristics. He should have his knapsack beside his regular shelter, everything necessary to survival in case he finds himself alone for some time. In giving the list of equipment, we will refer essentially to that which should be carried by an individual located in rough country at the beginning of a war with frequent rainfall, some cold weather, and harassment by the enemy. In other words, we place ourselves in the situation that existed at the beginning of the Cuban War of Liberation. The equipment of the guerrilla fighter is divided into essential and the accessory. Among the first is a hammock, or a type of bedding. This provides adequate rest and is easy to find two trees from which it can be strung. And in cases where one sleeps on the ground, it can serve as a mattress. Whenever it is raining or the ground is wet, a, frequently, a frequent occurrence in the tropical mountain zones, the hammock is indispensable for sleeping. A piece of waterproof nylon cloth is its complement. The nylon should be large enough to cover the hammock when tied from its four corners and with a line strung through the center to the same tree from which they, the hammock hangs. This last line serves to make the nylon into a kind of tent by raising a centered ridge and causing it to shed water. A blanket is indispensable because it is cold in the mountains at night. It is also necessary to carry a garment such as a jacket or coat which will enable one to bear the extreme changes of temperature. Clothing should consist of rough work trousers and a shirt which may or may not be of a uniform cloth. Shoes should be of the best possible construction. Also, since without good shoes, marches are very difficult, they should be one of the first articles laid upon in reserve. Since the guerrilla fighter carries his house in his knapsack, the latter is very important. The more primitive types may be made from any kind of sack carried by two ropes, but those of canvas found in the market or made by a harness maker are preferable. The guerrilla fighter ought to carry some personal food besides which the troop carries or consumes in its camps. Indispensable articles are lard or oil, which is necessary for fat consumption, canned goods, which should not be consumed except in circumstances where food for cooking cannot be found or where there are too many cans and the weight impedes the march, preserved fish, which have great natural value, condensed milk, which is also nourishing, particularly on account of the large quantity of sugar that it contains, some sweet for its good taste, powdered milk can also be carried, sugar is another essential part of the supplies, as is salt, without which life becomes sheer martyrdom, and some things that serve to season the meals, such as onion, garlic, or etc., according to the characteristics of the country. This completes the category of essentials. The guerrilla fighter should carry a plate, knife, and fork, camping style, which will serve all the various necessary functions. The plate can be a camping or military type, or a pan that is usable for cooking any form of meat, to malanya or a potato for brewing tea or coffee. To care for the rifle, special greases are necessary. And these must be carefully administered. Sewing machines, oil is very good if there is no special oil available. Also needed are clothes that will serve for cleaning the arms frequently and a rod for cleaning the gun inside. Something that ought to be done often. The ammunition belt can be of commercial type or homemade according to the circumstances, but it ought to be made so that not a single bullet will be lost. Ammunition is the basis of the fight without which everything else would be in vain and must be cared for like gold. A canteen or bottle of water is essential since it will frequently be necessary to drink in a situation where water is not available among medicine those of great use should be carried for example penicillin or some other type of antibiotic preferably types taken orally carefully closed medicines for lowering fever such as aspirin and other adapted to treating the endemic diseases of the area these may be tablets against malaria sulfas for diarrhea medicine against parasites of all types in other words ...fit the medicine to the characteristics of the region. It is advisable in places where there are poisonous animals to carry appropriate injections. Surgical instruments will complete the medical equipment. Small personal items for taking care of less important injuries should also be included. A customary and extremely important comfort in the life of the guerrilla fighter is a smoke. Whether cigars, cigarettes, or pipe tobacco... A smoke in moments of rest is a great friend to the solitary soldier. Pipes are useful. They permit using to the extreme all tobacco that remains in the butts of cigars and cigarettes at the time of scarcity. Matches are extremely important, not only for lighting a smoke, but also for starting fires. This is one of the great problems in the forest in rainy periods. It is preferable to carry both matches and a lighter so that if the lighter runs out of fuel, matches remain as a substitute or vice versa. Soap should be carried, not only for personal cleanliness, but for washing essential utensils, because intestinal infections or irritations are frequent and can be caused by spoiled food left on dirty cookware. With this set of equipment, the guerrilla fighter can be assured that he will be able to live in the forest under adverse conditions, no matter how bad, for as long as necessary to dominate this situation. There are accessories that at times are useful, and other times constitute a bother, but are also very useful. The compass is one of these. At the outset of this will be used a great deal in gaining orientation, but little by little... Knowledge of the country will make it unnecessary. In mountainous regions, a compass is not much use, since the route indicate will usually be cut off by an impassable obstacle or mountain. Another useful article is an extra nylon cloth for covering all equipment when it rains. Remember that rain in tropical countries is continuous during certain months, and that water is the enemy of all things that the guerrilla fighter must carry. Food, ammunition, medicine, Paper, clothing, etc. A change of clothing can be carried, but this is usually a mark of inexperience. The usual custom is to carry no more than an extra pair of pants, eliminating extra underwear, and other articles such as towels. The life of the guerrilla fighter teaches him to conserve his energy in carrying his knapsack from one place to another, and he will little by little get rid of everything that does not have essential value. In addition to a piece of soap, useful for washing utensils, as well as for personal cleanliness, a toothbrush and paste should be carried. It is worthwhile, also, to carry a book of which will be exchanged with other members of the band. These books can be good biographies of past heroes, histories, or economic, geographic, preferably of the country, and works of general character that will serve to raise the cultural level of the soldier and, and discourage the tendency to ward gambling or other undesirable forms of passing time. There are periods of boredom in the life of the guerrilla fighter. Wherever there is extra space in the knapsack, it ought to be used for food, except in the zones where the food supply is easy and sure. Sweets or food of lesser importance, complementing the basic items, can be carried. Crackers can be one of those, although they take up a large space, break up, and crumble. In thick forests, a machete is useful. In very wet places, a small bottle of gasoline or light resinous wood, such as pine, for kindling, will make fire building easier when the wood is wet. A small notebook and pen or pencil for taking notes and for letters to the outside or communication to other guerrilla bands ought to always be part of the guerrilla fighter's equipment. Pieces of string or rope should be kept available. These have many uses. Also, needles, threads, and buttons for clothing. The guerrilla fighter who carries this equipment will have a solid house on his back. Rather heavy, but furnished to assure a comfortable life during hardships of the campaign. Chapter 3, Part 3. Organization of a Guerrilla Band. No rigid scheme can be offered for the organization of a guerrilla band. There will be innumerable differences according to the environment in which it is to operate. For convenience of exposition, we will suppose that our experience has a universal application, but it should be kept in mind always that there will possibly be new forms that comport better with the particular characteristics of a given armed group. The size of the component units of the guerrilla force is one of the most difficult problems to deal with. There will be different numbers of men and different compositions of the troop. As we already explained, let us suppose a force situated in favorable ground, mountainous with conditions not so bad as to necessitate perpetual flight, but not so good as to afford a base of operations. The combat units of an armed force thus situated ought to number not more than 150 men. Even this number is rather high. Ideal would be a unit of about 100 men. This constitutes a column and in the Cuban organization is commanded by a comandante. It should be remembered that in our war... The grades of corporal and sergeant were omitted because they were considered reminiscent of tyranny. Footnote 4. On this premise, the comandante commands this whole force of 100 to 150 men, and there will be as many captains as there are groups of 30 to 40 men. The captain has the function of directing and unifying his platoon, making it fight almost always as a unit, and looking after the distribution of men, and the general organization. In guerrilla warfare, the squad is the functional unit. Each squad, made up of approximately 8 to 12 men, is commanded by a lieutenant, who performs for his group functions, analogous to those of the captain, but whom he must always be in constant subordination. The operational tendency of the guerrilla band to function in small groups makes the squad the true unit. Eight to ten men are the maximum that can act as a unit in a fight in these conditions. Therefore, the squad, which will frequently be separated from the captain, even though they fight on the same front, will operate under the orders of his lieutenant. There are exceptions, of course. A squad should not be broken up nor kept dispersed at times when there is no fighting. Each squad and platoon should know who the immediate successor is in case the chief fails, and these persons should be sufficiently trained to be able to take over their new responsibilities immediately. One of the fundamental problems of the troop is food supply. In this, everyone from the last man to the chief must be treated equally and alike. This acquires a high importance not only because of the chronic shortage of supplies, but also because meals are the only event to take place daily. The troops, who have a keen sense of justice, measure their rations with a sharp eye. The least favoritism for any ought never to be permitted. If in certain circumstances the meal is served to the whole column, a regular order should be established and observed strictly. And at the same time, The quantity and quality of food given to each one ought to be carefully checked. In the distribution of clothing, the problem is different, these being articles of individual use. Here, too, considerations prevail. First, the demand for the necessities of those who need them, which will almost always be greater than the supply. And second, the length of service and merits of each one of the applicants. The length of service and merits, something very different to fix exactly, should be noted in special booklets by one assigned this responsibility under the direct supervision of the chief of the column. The same should be said about the other articles that become available, and they are individual rather than collective utility. Tobacco and cigarettes ought to be distributed according to the general rules of equal treatment for everybody. This task of distribution should be a specifically assigned responsibility. It is preferable that the person's designated to be attached directly to the command. The command performs, therefore, administrative tasks of liaisons, which are very important, as well as all the other special tasks that are necessary. Officers of the greatest intelligence ought to be in it. Soldiers attached to the command ought to be alert and at maximum dedication, since their burdens will usually be greater than those borne by the rest of the troop. Nevertheless, they can have no special treatment at mealtime. Each guerrilla fighter carries his complete equipment. There are also a series of implements of use to the group that should be equitably distributed within the column. For this, too, rules can be established depending upon the number of unarmed persons in the troop. One system is to distribute all extra material, such as medicines, medical or dental or surgical instruments, extra food, clothing, supplies, general supplies, and heavy weapons equally among all the platoons, which will then be responsible for their custody. Each captain will distribute these supplies among the squad, and each chief of the squad will distribute them among his men. Another solution which can be used when a part of the troop is not armed is to create a special squad or platoon assigned to transport. This works out well, since it leaves the soldier, who already has the weight and responsibility of his rifle, free of extra cargo. In this way, danger of losing material is reduced, since it is concentrated, and at the same time, there is an incentive for the porter to carry more and to carry better and to demonstrate more enthusiasm, since in this way, he will win his right to a weapon in the future. These platoons will march in the rear positions and will have the same duties and the same treatment as the rest of the troop. The task to be carried out by a column will vary accordingly to its activities. If it is encamped, there will be special teams for keeping watch. These should be experienced, specially trained, and they should receive some special reward for this duty. This can consist of increased independence, or if there is an excess of sweets or tobacco, after proportional distribution to each column, something extra for the members of those units that carry out special tasks. For example, if there are 100 men and 115 packages of cigarettes, Fifteen extra packages of cigarettes can be distributed among members of the units referred to. The vanguard and the rear vanguard units, separated from the rest, will have special duties of vigilance. But, besides, each platoon ought to have such a watch of its own. The farther from the encampment the watch is maintained, the greater is the security of the group, especially when it is in open country. The places chosen should be high, dominating, a wide area by day, and difficult to approach by night. If the plan is to stay several days, it is worthwhile to construct defenses that will permit a sustained fire in case of an attack. These defenses can be obliterated when the guerrilla band moves, or they can be left if its circumstances no longer make it necessary to hide the path of the Column. In places where permanent encampments are established, the defenses ought to be improved consistently. Remember that in the mountain zones on ground carefully chosen, the only heavy arm that is effective is the mortar. Using roofs reinforced with materials from this region, such as wood, rocks, glass, etc., it is possible to make good refuges, which are difficult for the enemy forces to approach, and which will afford protection from mortar shells for the guerrilla forces. It's very important to maintain discipline in the camp, and this should have an educational function. The guerrilla fighters should be required to go to bed and get up at fixed hours. Games that have no social function and that hurt the morale of the troops from the consumption of alcohol and drinks should be both prohibited. All these tasks are performed by a commission of internal orders elected from those combatants of greatest revolutionary merit. Another mission of these persons is to prevent the lighting of fires in places visible from a distance or that raise columns of smoke before nightfall. Also, to see that camp is kept clean and that it is left in such condition When the column leaves, as to show no signs of passage if this is necessary. Great care must be taken with fires, which leave traces for a long time. They must be covered with earth, paper cans, and scraps of food should also be burned. During the march, complete silence must prevail in the column. Orders are passed by gestures, by whispers, that go from mouth to mouth until they reach the last man. If the guerrilla band is marching through unknown places, breaking a road or being led by a guide, the vanguard will be approximately 100 or 200 meters or even more in front, according to the characteristics of the ground. In places where confusion may arise as to the route, a man will be left at each turning to await those who follow, and this will be repeated until the last man in the rear guard has passed. The rear guard will also be somewhat separated from the rest of the column, keeping a watch on the roads in the rear and trying to erase tracks of the troop as much as possible. If there is a road coming from the side that offers danger, it is necessary always to have a group keeping a watch on it until the last man has passed. It is more practical that each platoon utilizes its own men for this special duty with each having the obligation to pass the guard to members of the following platoon, and then to rejoin his own unit. This process will be continued until the whole troop has passed. The march should be uniform and in an established order, always the same. Thus, it will always be known that platoon 1 is the vanguard, followed by platoon 2, and then platoon 3, which may be commanded, then platoon 4, ...followed by a rear guard or platoon 5... ...or other platoons that make up the column. Always in the same order. In night marches, silence should be even stricter... ...and the distance between each combatant shorter... ...so that no one will get lost... ...and make it necessary to shout and turn on lights. Light is the enemy of the guerrilla fighter at night. If all this marching has attack as its objective... Then upon arriving at the given point, the point to which all will return after the objective has been accomplished, extra weight will be set down. Such things as knapsacks, cooking utensils for example, and each platoon will proceed with nothing more than its arms and fighting equipment. The point of attack should have been already studied by trustworthy people who have recognized the ground and have observed the location of the enemy guards. The leaders, knowing the orientation of the base, the number of men that defend it, etc., will make the final plans for the attack and send combatants to their places. Always keeping in mind that a good part of the troop should be assigned to intercept reinforcements. In cases where the attack upon the base is to be merely a diversion in order to provoke the sending of reinforcements along roads that can be easily ambushed, a man should communicate the results rapidly, to the command as soon as the attack has been carried out, in order to break the encirclement if necessary to prevent being attacked from the rear. In any case, there must always be a watch on the roads that lead to the place of combat while the encirclement or direct attack is being carried out. By night, a direct attack is always preferable. It is possible to capture an encampment if there is enough drive and necessary presence of mind, and if the risks are not excessive. An encirclement requires waiting and taking cover, closing in steadily on the enemy, trying to harass him in every way, and above all, trying to force him in to fire to come out. When the circle has been closed, to the short range, the Molotov cocktail is a weapon of extraordinary effectiveness, footnote 5. Before arriving at the range for the cocktail, shotguns with a special charge can be employed. These arms, cushioned in our war with the name of the M16, consists of a 16-caliber sawed-off shotgun with a pair of legs added in such a way that with the butt of the gun they formed a tripod. The weapon will thus be mounted at an angle of about 45 degrees. This can be varied by moving the legs back and forth. It is loaded with an open shell from which all the shot has been removed. A cylindrical stick extending from the muzzle of the gun is used as the projectile. A bottle of gasoline resting on a rubber base is placed at the end of the stick. This apparatus will fire the burning bottle a hundred meters or more with a fairly high degree of accuracy. This is an ideal weapon for encirclements when the enemy has many wooden or inflammable material constructions. Also, for firing against tanks in hilly country. Once the encirclement ends with a victory, or having completed its objectives, is withdrawn. All platoons retire in order to the place where the knapsacks have been left and normal life is resumed. The nomadic life of the guerrilla fighter in this stage produces not only a deep sense of fraternity among the men, But at times also dangerous rivalries between groups of platoons. If these are not channeled to produce beneficial emulations, there is a risk that the unity of the column will be damaged. The education of the guerrilla fighter is important from the very beginning of the struggle. This should explain to them the social purpose of the fight and their duties. Clarify their understandings, and give them lessons in morale that serve to forge their characters. Each experience should be a new source of strength for victory, and not simply one more episode in the final fight for survival. One of the greatest educational techniques is example. Therefore, the chiefs must consistently offer the example of a pure and devoted life. Promotion of the soldier should be based on valor, capacity, and the spirit of sacrifice. Whomever does not have these qualities in high degree ought not to have responsible assignments since he will cause unfortunate accidents at any moment. The conduct of the guerrilla fighter will be subject to judgments whenever he approaches a house to ask for something. The inhabitants will draw favorable or unfavorable conclusions about the guerrilla band according to the manners in which any service or food or other necessity is solicited and the methods used to get what is wanted the explanation by the chief should be detailed about these problems emphasizing their importance he should also teach by example if a town is entered all drinking of alcohol should be prohibited and the troops should be exhorted beforehand to give the best possible example of discipline. The entrances and exits to the town should be constantly watched. The organization combat capacity, heroism, and spirit of the guerrilla band will undergo a test of fire during an encirclement by the enemy, which is the most dangerous situation of the war. In the jargon of our guerrilla fighters in the recent war, the phase encirclement face was given to the face of fear worn by someone who was frightened. The hierarchy of the deposed regime pompously spoke of its campaigns of encirclement and annihilation. However, for a guerrilla band that knows the country and that is united ideologically and emotionally with its chief, this is not a particularly serious problem. It need only take cover to try and slow up the advance of the enemy, impede his action with heavy equipment, and await nightfall the natural ally of the guerrilla fighter. Then, with the greatest possible stealth, after exploring and choosing the best road, the band will depart, utilizing most adequate means of escape and maintaining absolute silence. It is extremely difficult in these conditions at night to prevent a group of men from escaping the encirclement. Footnote 4 Fugencio Batista first came to power in Cuba as a result of a sergeant's revolt against Gerard Machudo in 1933. Footnote 5. A Molotov cocktail is a bottle containing three parts kerosene and one part mortar oil. The bottle is sealed and wrapped in waste cotton, which is sprinkled with gasoline and ignited. When hurled against a target, the bottle breaks and the burning kerosene spreads a sheet of flame.